you've not already done so, I'd like to invite you to join me in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for the second part of the Spiritual Gifts sermon as we continue this Gospel for Life series. And as you're looking there, uh, I do want to thank the church uh, for your prayers and for your care concerning the recent trip to Nigeria. Uh, Pastor Jim just prayed about that a few moments ago, and I left last Friday uh, and then returned this past Friday afternoon. So it was a, it was a brief trip, but I believe it was uh, quite a fruitful trip. And some of the travel was disrupted on the front end, and uh, we did not arrive until late Saturday evening, and then uh, the next day did not arrive to the city that we were doing the teaching in until sort of evening on Sunday night. And uh, at first I was quite discouraged about that because that was supposed to be the day where I visited with Ephraim and visited with uh, Pastor Correct and Pastor Mammon. And those two names will be familiar to some of you. Uh, it was around 10 years ago that uh, our church prayed and decided to help these two brothers uh, plant a church. And Correct was going to be in the, in the bush and Mammon was going to be in the city and had not seen either one of them for nearly 10 years. And that was going to be the day that we were supposed to have the Nigerian party. We we're going to get together and reunite with one another. But uh, travel plans, unavoidable, disrupted that. And so uh, thankfully, though, um, <clears throat> the way the part of the disruption meant that our teaching schedule was thrown in flux as well. And so we were clipping things on the fly, trying to consolidate uh, sessions. And so the way that it worked out is I essentially had uh, about all of Wednesday free. I uh, showed up at our training site, led that morning's devotion, and then Ephraim came and picked me up. And uh, it was during that day that I got to visit with Mammon and Correct. And uh, we've had a lot going on this morning, but next week I have two brief videos that, uh, that I want to show for you where they, each of them send their greetings uh, to this church. And so they asked about many of the members here. Um, but the trip was a, overall was a very fruitful, a very fruitful time. And I've got a couple of things jotted down, mainly just a couple of quotes that I want to share with you. Uh, one of which was from uh, one of the pastors named Samuel. And this was during lunch when he was speaking of the recent sufferings that they have been enduring. And uh, he, he just, he, he spoke of God in this way. He just, God is our stronghold. And he said, when we suffer, we are encouraged. And the reason that we are encouraged is because we're seeing specifically how the word of God is being fulfilled. And that's a remarkable statement coming from someone who has in, encountered sufferings. And he has a little dent on his forehead uh, where a number of years ago he had been shot um, based on his belief in Christ. Uh, he also said following that, that that Christ is going to build his church and no force can stop this. And uh, he talked about the testing of faith. And, uh, and I, when he was talking about the testing of faith, I followed that up with, well, our faith, according to James 1, has to be tested. I mean, we're, we're tempted in so many ways, and we're to consider it all joy uh, when we are, when we are tested. And he just stopped me, and he just said, my, my faith has been tested, and uh, we're remaining faithful 
in uh, the Lord. Um, A number of things that I could share with you about the week overall, but I I did want to publicly thank you for your for your prayers. Um, I don't remember which evening or day it was, but I just asked the church to specifically pray uh, because I was laboring in some ways in the, in the teaching. It was day one of our training. Uh, like I said earlier, the teaching schedule was just thrown in all kinds of flux. And so um, I was given, I was supposed to teach two sessions and because we had to now ride the train back to Abuja on the way back, that meant most of Thursday was no longer going to be a day that we were going to teach. So I was combining two sessions into one, and uh, when, you're, when you're overseas doing training, you really never know when, when it's actually going to begin. So you have a start time of about 9.30, but in reality, things aren't probably going to get going until about 11 o'clock. And then uh, they're not Western, um, like us, we, we have our fixed time schedules. And so lunch was supposed to be from 12 to 1. And so um, I, I got up to, to teach. And so as I'm, as I'm teaching, I finish. I know none of you are going to believe this, but I, I finished at the time that I said I was going to finish. Um, it, was, it was 102, so I, I borrowed about two minutes. Well, I prayed and sat down, and then the, uh, the guy that kind of presided over the training that week, he stood up and said, lunch is not here yet. Uh, why don't you come back up here and keep teaching some more until lunch is ready? So I went back up there, taught some more, ate lunch, came back, and finished that, finished that session. And uh, I, just, I just struggled throughout the entire time. Um, it's, uh, and it was, a, it, was a, it was a battle, and this is why I felt compelled to reach out to you and ask for your prayers is because I felt like it was a battle between godly ambition and my own pride. Godly ambition and my own pride. Godly ambition is I want to be faithful to the text. I want to be faithful to teaching. That's godly ambition. Teaching with clarity. That too is godly ambition. You you want to be faithful to the text. You want to be clear. You want to be helpful and uh, I felt like in, as I was teaching, I was realizing as I was teaching, I'm saying the word biblical more than I'm demonstrating from the Bible what it is I'm trying to say. And that in the moment just wrecked me. It did. It wrecked me. And part of it was I was continuing from the same text that the brother before me had already been, had already been teaching. Um, but then I, I, I just, yeah, I sat down and throughout the day internally. That's where, that's where pride was rising up. Uh, these self-incriminating, prideful thoughts that were saying, I'm a lousy teacher. Uh, this is not helpful. Uh, what are you doing? You should have spent some more time uh, in preparation. They're never going to ask you to come back. Have you ever helped anybody before in your life in teaching? So these are, these are real-life thoughts entering into the mind. And it may sound silly for me to say that, but I just want to name those and, and, and say those were the kind of, that, that's, the, that's the real battle and wrestling that was going on. And the only way that I know how to fight and combat that is to ask people, enter in with me and pray. Just the Lord wants to be faithful to, he, 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 he wants me to be faithful to the text. He wants to do good for his people. Those things are good, and that's what the Lord desires. And how I feel about that 
really is so inconsequential. And uh, I just want to thank you because you, you prayed. I didn't see some of those prayers until a long time after that because internet, Wi-Fi was so unreliable and spotty and sketchy uh, over there. But thank you. I, I really do appreciate the specific ways that you interceded. And um, God was, God was uh, remarkably kind and uh, greatly assisted and aided the rest of the teaching that week. And it's one of the greatest joys I have in life is, is preaching and preaching with the, with the awareness that it is the Holy Spirit who is speaking the words and that these are not my words, but it, it, it's him who's taking his word and applying it to the heart. And that's, that's, that, was, that was what I was aiming for, and that's what was so helpful. So thank you. Uh, continue to pray. This module was on church planting and discipleship. And... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, I, I, I do believe that our, our church um, will have more opportunities to serve the church there in Nigeria. So uh, thank you again for allowing me to go, and thank you for your prayers, and thank you for the care for the family. All right, well, let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I'm going to read this chapter in its entirety, and then we'll pray and ask the Lord's help. Hear the word of the Lord. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of ministries in the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things and all persons. But to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit, and to another, gifts of healing by, by the one Spirit. And to another, the effecting of miracles, and to another, prophecy, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. For even as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I am not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am, no, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body, just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now, there are many members, but one body. 
And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, various kinds of tongues. All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healings, do they? All do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? But earnestly desire the greater gifts. And I will show you a still more excellent way. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's ask for his help. God, we do thank you for this opportunity you've given us again today. We pray that you would open our eyes to see and our heart to believe wonderful things that you say from your word. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Just a few weeks ago, uh, Jaden's softball season ended. And uh, as is so often the case, there was a, uh, a party to celebrate this um, at the end of the year. And so we all gathered at this pizza place and uh, the head coach of the team uh, began to give out certificates to uh, each player. And as he was reading off the, uh, he's reading off specific awards and accomplishments for each player, at first I thought, man, this is going to be, this is going to be kind of a stretch uh, to identify uh, at least one way, <coughs> excuse me, for uh, each member of this team to have been able to contribute in a very significant way uh, toward this team. And part of that is which is that on this team, there were a couple of girls that this was the first time they'd ever played the game of softball. And uh, you could tell that first day of practice, I'm out there and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm helping. And, uh, and one particular girl um, had never thrown a softball. I don't think she had ever caught a softball. And I immediately became concerned. One's just going to nail her in the face. I mean, she's, she's going to get a busted lip, a broken nose, something. So I put her in the catcher's equipment. I put her in the catcher's equipment. I thought that's going to do one of two things. That's going to save money on a potential dental bill. And it might be able to just instill in her a little bit of confidence that she's not worried about the ball hitting her in the face. And so um, if you were to look at this team from the perspective of a fan, you would not notice the individual contributions for each team member. Even the girls who had never played before, I was, I was, uh, I, I was, in, I was encouraged as the coach would identify uh, certain players on the team who had the most walks or the most runs scored or um, the most aspect of this with softball. And what I quickly began to see is that every 
single girl on this team contributed to the overall goal of winning games. And even when one of the coaches came to me mid-season and he just said, you do realize that this team would just fall through the cracks if it weren't for, uh, if it weren't for this player. And, uh, and I, I said to him, I, I mean, it's kind of you to say that, but the team does not rise and fall on one particular player. Every, every single person is needed. And if you were watching, you, might, you would be able to see those players who were a little better. You'd be able to see the players who maybe not had played before. But it was helpful to see the specific ways on how God, or not how God, specific ways how each girl on the team was used to contribute to these things. All of them were needed. Each of them were needed to accomplish these things. And this metaphor of a team, it's, it's, it's widely used, and perhaps in some respects it's overused. Who hasn't been a part of a sports devotion before where this concept of this metaphor that we play as a team, we win as a team, we lose as a team. But I believe it's helpful again when we understand 1 Corinthians chapter 12, specifically how God has composed the body, how God has placed each individual member in it. And as I considered this theme in light of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, I've asked the Lord to do these two, these two things. One is to help reveal to us any way, whether it's significant or insignificant, whether it's big or small, any way that we are not functioning in a unifying way so that the, the admonition that he provided in verse 25, that there is no division in the body, would be received by us as if God is saying the same thing to us, which he is. Equally as important as not allowing divisions, I'm asking the Lord to help us grow in our understanding of how he has individually gifted us for service in this church body. In God's wise design, he has put us as individuals together. Every single one of us needs every single one of us. This is how God has composed the body. So, if you're here today, I'm going to talk to our, our young ears, our, our children. So kids, I want you to pay attention for just a second. These are three, I hope, helpful words um, that you'll be able to pick up throughout today's sermon. So these are the three words. One is gifts. The other one, Jesus Christ. And then third word is unity. So gifts, Jesus Christ, unity. So when you hear me use the word gifts, what I'm talking about are things that are given to us by the Spirit of God. He gives, he gives gifts to the church. Lordship of Jesus Christ is, is that. When you hear of Jesus Christ, these gifts are given under the Lordship of Jesus. And he's doing so so that this church body would be united in all things. So, for the adults, the big ears, uh, our outlined is two points today. One is gifts from the Spirit of God. And secondly, the manifestation and use of gifts in the church. So first of all, let's consider gifts from the Spirit of God. We find this in verses 1 through 11. 
And uh, here are sp some specific questions that I aim to answer this morning when we consider gifts from the Spirit of God. Who are they from? To whom are they given? Under whose authority are these gifts to be given and fleshed out? For what purpose were these gifts given? And what gifts were actually identified here in the Corinthian church? So let's consider this first question. From whom? We all want to know if we've received a gift, who it is that has, who, who's the gift giver? Who's the one who's given this gift? How, in what ways have they thought and considered us? Verse 11 answers this question by saying very clearly, it's the Spirit of God. God the Holy Spirit is the one who's given these gifts. Did he do so because there was some inadequacy in him? Was, was there something insufficient in the third person of the Trinity that necessitated him giving gifts to the church to fill up some void or something that was lacking in him? Later we're going to answer the purpose for these gifts, but for now we understand these gifts of the Spirit were not based on any deficiency in the Spirit. It wasn't to complete something that was lacking in the Godhead. And to illustrate this, I want to give us just a crash course for pneumatology, which is the study or the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Consider the, the, the person, the ministry, and the role of the Holy Spirit as the Bible holds him forth. Ephesians 1.13, and I'm going to go at a pretty quick clip through this. He is our seal. He, or excuse me, he is the seal of our redemption. Also, in Ephesians 1.13, the Holy Spirit is the pledge of our inheritance. John 14, the Spirit is described in this way. He is the helper who is with us forever. He is the Spirit of truth that will be with us forever and will assure us that Christ will not leave us as orphans. He is the Spirit of truth who abides with the Christian. All these are from John 14. He is the one who in us fulfills all of the promises that were made by Christ. He is the helper who is sent by God in Jesus' name. He will teach and bring to remembrance all the things that Jesus has said. The Holy Spirit is our peace. He is the helper sent from God through Jesus to us. He proceeds from the Father. He testifies about Christ. Not only is he the helper, he is also the help. He convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment, according to John 16, 9. He is the spirit of truth. He guides into all truth. He will glorify Christ. He will disclose Christ. He is interceding for us in accordance with God's will. 1 Thessalonians 1, 5, our gospel comes not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, we see the purpose for which the Holy Spirit would come. Acts chapter 2, did he ever come? And you can read throughout Acts to see that the apostles were unquestionably dependent upon the Holy Spirit. And so I just want to encourage, this is just a, a brief little survey of how the Bible describes the third person of the Trinity and his role. So let's not allow the many ways that people abuse the gifts and malign the Spirit to cause us to be afraid to depend upon Him 
or to talk about the Spirit or to endeavor to understand Him more fully, to understand His person and His role within the triune Godhead. So let me ask this question here. What is the best gift or one of the best gifts that you have ever been given? What made this gift so good? What made it uh, something that you really, really enjoyed? In all likelihood, you were probably struck and moved by the thoughtfulness of the gift giver. They, they considered you. They considered something you might like. They even thought about something that you might want, but you may not have the money to possess yourself, or it might not be the kind of thing that you would, um, that you would buy yourself. So these are some of the reasons for why this gift was given and why we considered the thoughtfulness of the person who provided it. Who is the greatest gift giver known to man is God. And the reason that it's God is because of the greatest gift that he's given, and that is the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. This is the language of Scripture when we see the word sent. God sent Jesus to be, at least one example, the propitiation for our sins. Titus 2 tells us, that Jesus gave himself to free us from every lawless deed. Additionally, Ephesians chapter 4, gifts that God's given to the church, and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith. So you see, in God's wise design, through the Holy Spirit, reasons, purposes, for which he has given these gifts to the church. It's the pattern of Scripture where we find that God gives through Christ. We receive in Christ. This is for the church's mutual, mutual edification and growing up in Christ. This is why Colossians holds him forth as our all in all. So that's question number one. Question number two, to whom were the gifts given? Was it random or was it specific? Again, verse 11 holds forth our answer. Okay, you all with me? All right. To whom were the gifts given? The same Spirit who works all things distributes gifts individually as He wills. Same Spirit who works all things distributes individually gifts as He wills. I'll highlight this verse again to illustrate that the Spirit is the one who distributes the gifts. He distributes these gifts individually. And this individual gift distribution is according to his own will. I want you to look closely with me again to that phrase. He wills. The reason this is important is because we see in this verse the very personhood of the Spirit. The Spirit is not an it. 
He's not his own God. He is God. He's, he's one of three persons. We see in this verse the very personhood of the Spirit. Gifts were not given, not as a force. They're not given by a force, but they were being given from a person within the triune Godhead. To believe the gift comes by something other than the Spirit of God would be to deny the very person of the Spirit. It would to be to call into question the triune Godhead. This would be the basis for our understanding of what blasphemy is, which is contributing to something else what only the Spirit is able and capable from doing. So these gifts are personal in nature. They're personal in nature because they come from a person. This person is God. The third person of the Trinity, he is the one who endows us with these gifts. So individually, as he wills, he gives to his church. This third question, under whose authority were these gifts distributed? Verse 3 very clearly answers this question, under, under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Not in place of, not over, but under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Here lies the litmus test to understand if someone is using the gift given to them by God to serve the church or to serve themselves. Divisions come when gifts aren't understood as being under the lordship of Christ. Or to put it another way, under the authority of Christ. Paul wanted them in verse 1 to be aware that they had not earned these gifts, nor were they born with these gifts. The Spirit had distributed to them under the authority and lordship of Jesus Christ. And divisions would occur in this church and in any church when they're not used in the mutual care for one another. A few years ago, I was in uh, West Memphis at the Goodyear, and I was getting my uh, car worked on, and a lady came in there, same thing, and she saw me reading my Bible. She struck up a conversation, and uh, for a few moments, it seemed like there were some common interests there in regards to God. And then quite, then pretty soon thereafter, uh, she made, made it known to me that she was a, that she was a prophetess. And so she was going to try her hand of prophecy and seeing if she could uh, kind of share with me what's going on with my life. I thought, okay, let's play. And so she starts talking, and she just starts sharing these things and uh, about, I can just, I bet this is going on, and I bet this is about to happen. And she's, she's just saying one thing after another, then she just said, so, so am, I, am, I, am I close? This is the phrase that she used. Am I, am I in the kitchen? Am I, am I in your kitchen? And I was like, no, you, <laughs> I don't even think we're in the same state. Uh, you're, you, are, you are not in my, in my kitchen. I, this is not what's going on in my life. And I quickly realized her ploy. And her ploy was really just to say enough general things that if somebody uh, weren't really aware of what's going on and had no idea for what was happening, you could real easily just think, man, she she." She really does know a few things about me. Like, who in their life doesn't have some kind of trouble? Who in their life doesn't have at least one or two things that are going? Those are the, those are the kind of categories, the stuff she was saying. It was, so, it was so general 
that if you weren't careful, uh, you, you might think that she knew what she was talking about. But rather, she wasn't a prophetess. She was a false prophet. She was an enemy of God. She was doing harm to the Lord's people by self-imposing on others what had not been granted to her by the Spirit of God. Some of you may have similar experiences. You come across these. Uh, Drew Kaiser and I meet um, on, on about every Tuesday at the Howard's over. I don't know what it is about West Memphis that some of these things are coming out. I don't, I don't know if it is, has anything to do with the state. Um, but we were meeting there one Tuesday for discipleship, and uh, a guy interrupted us. And again, one or two things he said was helpful, and then he quickly veered to, I've seen Jesus. I saw Jesus. Well, I, I can say that. You can say that. We understand what we, what we, what we mean by that. We're seeing Christ through his, through his word. But that's not what this guy meant. He, with, his, with eyes, he was trying to uh, suggest to us that he saw Jesus. So, afterwards, I just looked at Drew. I was like, what do you, what do you make of that? What do you think about that? What, what do you, how would you describe these things? What would be your answer to these kind of things? And it provided a wonderful opportunity to test what this guy was saying and to test this lady at the, at the car place, to test these experiences and these episodes against the very clearly written, revealed word of God. And so that's what I want to appeal to you in these experiences that you just think, man, I'm not really sure what to do with that. You examine it in the light of God's revealed word. Can the Bible corroborate this experience? If not, then you can dismiss it as being false, extra biblical, and quite dangerous. So Paul reminded them in verse 2, anyone can be led astray in following idols. So don't miss this, that understanding the lordship of Jesus when gifts are on display were quite significant in helping the Corinthians to understand the experiential works of God. Examine every experience under God's clearly revealed will through his word. Understand that everything done in the name of Christ is to be done under the lordship of Jesus Christ. These Old Testament prophets, they were judged accordingly to truthfulness in thus say the Lord. Similarly, New Testament teachers will be judged accordingly. I'll be judged accordingly to this sermon today. So question number four, for what purpose were the gifts given? We'll look at this vertically and horizontally. Vertically, is the spirit alone in the work of distributing gifts? Scholar Tom Schreiner answers this question, I think, in a helpful way. Identifying the gifts as spiritual and as gifts are two complementary ways of describing God's work in the congregation. On the one hand, the manifestations are the work of the spirit. On the other hand, they are gifts. They are freely granted to believers by the grace of God. In every case in verses 4 through 6, the description of the gifts is matched 
with a reference to God that accords with the point Paul makes. So in verse 4, the gifts are ascribed to the Spirit, confirming that they are supernatural manifestations. If the different gifts emphasize diversity, the same Spirit underlines unity. The body is not divided since the gifts granted come from the same Spirit who dwells in each one. So we can see vertically why it is, our understand our relation to God, why it is that he has distributed these gifts. Now what might the purpose be horizontally, church level? Verses 4 through 7, they were given quite, quite clearly for the common good of the church. They were given so the church could serve one another under the lordship of Christ. Paul's understanding of this was fleshed out in the ways that he would greet and pray for the church. If you recall um, back in chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, when Paul used these descriptions in the very greeting, he said, you're the church. Verse 2, you are sanctified in Christ. I thank God for you because of the grace that was given to you in Christ. And in verse 7, he said that you are not lacking in any gift. Did the Corinthians have divisions? Of course they did. But it was not because there was something that was lacking in Christ, nor was it a deficiency in the gifts that had been given. So no Corinthian could look and wag their hand at God and just say, you're to blame for this. If we could have more of Christ, we wouldn't have these issues. If you would just gift us in these ways, then maybe we wouldn't have the kind of strife that we have. No Corinthian could wag his finger to God and say these things. You're not lacking in all of that. The Corinthians had in Christ and each other all that they needed to remain faithful to the end. However, they were failing to believe the gospel and they were lacking in putting hope in a sufficient Christ. So when individual church members have a divided heart on the gospel, this is what's going to inevitably happen. It will lead to divisions within the membership. The small leak in the roof that we have back here, the small leak in this roof, it may not seem like it's a big deal at this time. But what will happen if that leak is not repaired? Eventually, entire destruction. So God has composed the body so that there is no division in the body. Pay attention to every seemingly insignificant leak in your life. Verse 7 in chapter 1 says the gifts were given in part as they waited for the Lord and as a means of sustaining them until the end guiltless in the day of Christ. Gifts on display in the church highlight the goodness, the glory, the wisdom, the work and service of the very gift giver himself. Who opens a present? Who opens a present from someone and shouts out, man, I am so great at receiving gifts. Like, I'm, I'm just a consummate gift receiver. There, there's nobody who receives a gift quite like me. Nobody says that. We, we, we're, we're moved toward the person who's given us a gift, so long as it's a good one, right? We're moved toward them at their thoughtfulness and generosity that they've extended. The Spirit, in much greater ways, 
has given gifts to the members of the church that are intended to be used under the lordship of Jesus Christ in such a way that they serve the functional needs of the body. This church is unique. We're, we're unique in every aspect. There's no, there's no church quite like this church. And I'm not saying that in a braggadocious way, although I love you. But we have our own unique needs. We are complex human beings that still wrestle around with the old nature. We're emotional. We're physical. We're spiritual. We're relational. And because we're all of these things, needs galore are connected with each and every one of these dynamics in ways that are unique to us as individuals. What do I mean by all that? We're, we're just a jacked up people. We are. We are, we are jacked up complex people. But when these things surface, when it's exposed, when it's shown the specific way for how needy I am, our first look obviously ought to be to give those things to the Lord. But I hope that what immediately follows after that is to see among this church family how might God be equipping this church family to meet this need. Revel in the particular roles, relationship, harmony, and unity that is in the eternal operation among the triune Godhead. Well, the last question in this first point. What gifts were identified? Verses 7 through 11. These gifts were spiritual in essence, nature, origin, and use. Keep in mind that what sandwiches this gift list is verse 7, that the Spirit is the one who's given them for the common good individually as he wills. And I'm sorry, verse 7, that the Spirit gives these gifts for the common good. And then the other part of the sandwich in verse 11, that it is the same Spirit who is at work distributing as he, as he wills. So it's the same Spirit who sandwiches this gift list that is there, which is not an exhaustive list. Verse 7 is crucial to helping us understand how to stay out of the ditch of abusing spiritual gifts. We, we, we don't want to go into the ditch of abuse, so how do we avoid that ditch? The gifts are a manifestation of the Spirit and not a manifestation of the self. So where they were on display, it was never to serve selfish ends. That's a litmus test of understanding. Is this the work of God in a way that's honoring and glorifying to God? In every instance, in every instance, the gifts given by the Spirit will glorify God. They will highlight the sufficiency of Christ. They will point to the ministry of the Holy Spirit and they will serve the common good of the church in every instance. So, gift one, the word of wisdom, verse eight. For one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. We also see the word of knowledge, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit. So some scholars surmise that these two gifts fall under the gift of teaching, and I would agree with that. Even though Paul didn't explicitly mention the gift of teaching here, he does in every other spiritual list or spiritual gift list that he gives, he mentions the gift of teaching. So let me illustrate. The wisdom and knowledge of God is expressed through the gift of teaching. Christ is wisdom, and Paul spent the first two chapters of Corinthians laying out that 
the message of wisdom is the message of the cross. And as further, as one commentator noted, there are parallels between the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. So listen to these phrases that Paul uses. The word of God, the word of faith, the word of truth, the word of life, the word of the Lord, the word of Christ. These phrases illustrate that the word is the teaching of the gospel that Paul is preaching and that he's teaching. It's the word of God. It's wisdom and knowledge. It's the same Paul who prays in Colossians 1. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and increase in all wisdom, excuse me, in all spiritual wisdom and insight. So Schreiner says, Paul does not sharply distinguish the words from one another. They overlap in meaning and are different facets of the same reality. Verse 9, the gift of faith by the Spirit. This is not the same gift as saving faith. We know this because Philippians 1.29 talks about how every Christian has been granted to believe in the name of Christ. They've also been granted to suffer for his namesake, but they've been granted for the sake of Christ to believe in him. So what this is highlighting is extraordinary faith, the kind that uh, next week, next chapter, chapter 13, verse 2, the kind of faith that can remove mountains or the kind of faith that James 5 talks about of the, the prayer of faith which makes the sick person will. Gifts of healing and gifts of the effecting of miracles. So similar overlap here as well. So the gift of healing was seen when people were healed from their sicknesses and their diseases, when the lame walked or the blind could see. The casting out of demons, however, might be unique to the gift of the effecting of miracles. One of the more challenging ones to understand is the gift of prophecy. Schreiner defines this as communicating revelation from God in a spontaneous manner. So the Old Testament prophet would foretell God's word with entire accuracy. So this brings up a question, are preaching and prophecy, are they the same? Is it the same thing when you, when you describe preaching, is it the same thing as, as prophecy? Preaching is a separate term than prophecy and is distinguishable. However, it does have a prophetic element in that it is a foretelling of God's word. Preaching heralds forth what God has revealed in his written word. We have written for us the revealed will of God. There's no, new, there's no use for new teaching. There's no new revelation that's going to uh, be unfolded to of this. Either one of these would be considered extra biblical and would fall in the realm of a false teacher. This is why the prosperity gospel is so hellish. These false teachers purport that they have some new revelation from God that uses just enough Bible to seem legit so that they can prey upon victims in service to their own needs. It's damnable. Preaching, though, does have a prophetic element to it since it does involve warnings. Flee these things. Take heed to these things. Otherwise, this will happen. Or expectations. What you'll receive when you're obedient and receive the promises that are afforded to you by God. The distinguishing of gifts. 
The use of this gift was employed in discerning what is true and what is false. One example of this would be in Acts chapter 16. Uh, Peter, excuse me, Paul, Silas, and Timothy uh, were walking along in the streets and there had a woman who was described who had a spirit of divination. And uh, she was quite profitable to her owners because of her fortune telling and she followed these three men around and this is what she said. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Anything with that sound or seem wrong? They're of the Most High God. They are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Acts chapter 16 continues that Paul was greatly annoyed. I love that. He was greatly annoyed, turns around and commands in the name of Jesus Christ that the Spirit come out of her, and it did. Truth, but of a false spirit. Tongues. Well, I'm going to reserve most of this for a couple of weeks from now. We're in chapter 14. But Paul has in view here various languages and not the ecstatic utterances which are the meaningless babbling that uh, are employed by charismatics. Acts chapter 2 would be one of the examples where they heard the gospel in their own language. The interpretation of tongues. Paul has in view here someone who's able to understand what is being said and they are able to translate in such a way for all to have understanding. Remember the gifts were given for the common good. What benefit it is for somebody to get up and babble about something that nobody understands, that they themselves cannot interpret, that they themselves were never intended to interpret. interpret. It's given for the common good of the church. So, again, more will be mentioned and discussed, Lord willing, in a couple of weeks on that. But here are just a few general statements about the gifts. Again, avoid falling in either ditch. One would be to abuse the gifts. The other ditch attempts to overcorrect the abuses by having little expectation for an extraordinary work of God. We want to avoid both. You don't want to abuse, but you don't want to also treat the Holy Spirit as though you're afraid of Him. That, you, that you're not diligent to try to understand Him and His role as you seek to understand Christ, as you seek to understand God. If you don't believe God is capable of answering your prayer, then why would we pray? If we don't believe God is able to bring someone to repentance and faith immediately, then why would we even share the gospel? In what ways are you lacking faith in the very God who is capable and delights in doing an extraordinary work of God? I want to appeal to us not to try and let God off the hook by attaching unbelief to prayer. This is not believing prayer. This is not the prayer of a righteous man that availeth much. We have confidence now that we can enter into the throne room boldly that we can lay a hold of the mercy seat without fear that we're going to be struck down that we can offer a prayer in faith to the father who listens and delights to give you the holy spirit that's the kind of confidence that's what we have in this seal of our redemption go to god boldly in prayer well secondly the manifestation and use of the gifts in the church. Here's some of the questions that I hope to aim this morning. How do gifts from the Spirit of God serve to unite the body rather than divide? How do individual gifts serve a church made up of several members? And here's the million-dollar question. 
Are gifts still in operation today? That's the one everybody's waiting for, right? So, the question number one. How do gifts from the Spirit of God serve to unite the body rather than divide? Verse 12. So is Christ. He is one. Many members but one body. He cannot be divided. He's not distributed. But rather when we receive Christ, we are able to know him and enjoy him as a whole, complete Christ. That we differ from him reveals our very need for him. We need him. And we need to become a member of his body and joined with other members. This is one example where we see the accent of Scripture is not on how different we are, but how we are united in Christ to the same family. Different gifts were individually distributed. And God is not showering favoritism on some. Nor was he even tempting the Corinthian church to divide in jealousy over wishing they were a hand rather than a foot. God was highlighting in the distribution of these gifts his infinite wisdom. Through the diversity of these gifts, he was showing the lordship of Jesus Christ. He was showing to the church, Jesus really is who matters here. So question two, how do individual gifts serve a church made up of several members? This reality that there's one body in Christ is what distinguishes the church from every other group in the world. Though individuals make up the body of Christ, we have Christ as our common bond with each other. Individuality is replaced with union. We are bound together in the bond of Christ. The metaphor of the body shows no member is inferior, no member is superior. We need one another. So in God's kindness, he uses each other to meet this need. The body cannot say to a member, I have no need of you. Consequently, the member cannot say to the body, I'm not needed. Less about individual gifting and what I bring, about, what I bring to the table and more about understanding the very things that unite us and bring us together in Christ. You belong to one body. This body is an identifiable, visible body, one in which he has qualified us to share in the inheritance that he has given us. None of us can put ourselves into this body. We have to be loved. We have to be atoned for. We have to be adopted. We have to be sealed. We have to be brought into. Romans, 8, 8, Romans 11 says we have to be grafted into this body. John 15 says we have to become a branch in his vine. And Paul uses the members of our body to illustrate the function that exists within the body. He's answering the question, how do we understand ourselves through this metaphor of the body? So if the foot were to say, I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body, or if the ear were to say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, again, Paul's answering the question, is there any use for me in this body? Do I have a part? Do I have a role in the body? The answer is given very clearly in verse 17. You have a place. It's not ours to question where God has placed us. It's not ours to compare our usefulness to other members of the body. You are a member in Christ's body, and this holds weighty eternal significance. I mentioned earlier the church in Corinth is endowed with spiritual gifts. 
usefulness, jealousy are certain ways the enemy's going to attempt to disrupt the unity in this church. But God has placed us here. He will make us aware and he will use other members in the body to help us know and flourish for the overall function of the church. God has placed and composed the body to show us that we have a place and we have a need. Verses 22 through 25, he's composed the body in a way that seemed to be where the weaker are necessary, less honorable are honorable, where the less presentable are presentable. You see what God is doing here. He's not shining light on individuals, but he's shining light on the body as a whole. Who among us here can say that we are not in need? What does it mean that God's placed you here? Or what are the benefits you receive as those God has gathered in as the body of Christ? These things are not done in our own doing. This means that our membership in the church is primarily Godward. That God intends good for your soul to be placed with um, other members that we would not be able to experience otherwise. That we would not be able to experience in isolation. Like your desires and your gifting are important within the context of other members. Not above others or to the exclusion of others that God has placed here. Membership in Christ is humbling where you acknowledge Christ and not you is his head. There is a beautiful Trinitarian blueprint that serves the church throughout the New Testament. No pride exists within the triune Godhead. We have no record of Jesus pulling God to the side to ask him if he could have a better role. We see from this text alone that God is the one who is at work in all persons. Jesus is the one who is Lord. And the Holy Spirit is the one who provides the gift. Not only this, but the Spirit of God enables, gives us the strength, enables us and gives us the strength to use the gifts that he's individually given us for his glory and for the unity of the body of Christ. That there is no division within the triune Godhead serves as our blueprint that working in humility, that there would be no division among us. So, one way this is fleshed out practically is a plurality of leadership here at this church. Individual gifting highlights our weaknesses, which is such a good thing and causes us to be grateful when our weaknesses are other people's strengths. Every member has a voice. Every member has a gift. Use it. Use it to build up the church. This is why we often read the phrase in the Bible that we are growing up together in Christ. We are weak together and we are strong together. Grow in the very place where God has planted you. The Bible doesn't have a category for people jumping from one church to the other. It's been helpful to think about the gifts that he gives to you individually to serve the common good of the church. The Bible doesn't have a category for just jumping from church to church. And I want you to hear me say this. I know that among us, there's some here who will eventually leave Grace Church to join a church elsewhere. That's, that's okay. So I'm not, I'm not at all saying that the Bible doesn't permit this. 
I just want to hold out for you a vision for giving yourself to one local church for a lifetime. I believe this biblical vision is supported by this very text, that the Spirit has given you a gift to be used for the church. That's not the same as saying that the church is going to fall through the cracks if a person or any person were to leave, but that God's infinite wisdom considers this congregation here. He considers our needs, and he gifts the members to serve each other in the way that the Spirit has willed to give you the gifts. This is why I love to say many times when I see a need go out um, that gets met, I love to see our church at work. Or when somebody uh, has something that they, they need and they put out there, and the encouragement is, church, do what you do. Isn't that a great delight and joy when these needs are there and the Lord uses this church body to meet these needs? Pray about the way God has gifted you for this church body. Then commit to serve him in humility with the strength that he alone provides. 1 Peter 4.10 As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Unity in the spirit exists among us when we celebrate the diverse ways God is using us. The weaker, those who have less honor, the world is going to exploit and mock weakness, saying there's no place for such people. Weak people don't work their way up the chain. The kingdom of God flips this concept by saying that you deem with more honor to the weak. Or as Jesus said in Matthew 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So let me conclude with this warning from Bonhoeffer. One that wants more than what Christ has established does not want Christian brotherhood. He is looking for some extraordinary social experience which he has not found elsewhere. He is bringing muddled and impure desires into Christian, Christian brotherhood. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community becomes a destroyer of the latter even though his personal intentions may, ev may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. So when you think about Christian community, what is it you have in view? When you think about the church and how the church can serve you, what is it that you have in view? If it's anything less than what the Bible holds forth as real Christian fellowship, what he describes as the church, then it can be a destroyer of the biblical community that's there through divisions. So, beloved, desire the greater gifts, but understand, as we'll look at next week, that there is a more excellent way. So, I know I haven't forgotten that question number three, are the gifts still in operation today? And uh, I'm going to hold that question uh, for a, a couple of more weeks until we consider the tongues. But I want to close with this statement here. God has composed this body. Or before I say that, just remind the kids, unity Lordship of Jesus and or gifts, Lordship of Jesus and unity. So God has composed this body, individually placed, uniquely gifted us under his Lordship for unity in the faith to love one another and to glorify his name. Let's pray.